1 Corinthians 16, Paul begins in verse 1 saying, Now concerning, which again brings us back all the way to chapter 7, verse 1, Paul said, Now concerning the things which you wrote to me. So the church had written a letter to him. We're going to see it was brought by a couple individuals. And he's still addressing those things. He had gone off a little bit on something they might not have written to him about in terms of the resurrection and a group there that didn't believe in it. He's addressed those things, and now he's going to go back to what they wrote to him and address the last situation apparently they asked him about, which was a collection. So he says, now concerning the collection for the saints, as I have given orders to the churches of Galatia, so you must do also. On the first day of the week, let each one of you lay something aside, storing up as he may prosper, that there be no collections when I come. And when I come, whoever you approve by your letters, I will send to bear your gift to Jerusalem. If it is fitting that I go also, they will go with me. So apparently they had some type of question in regards to this collection. Paul was making a collection, as mentioned in Romans 15 and in 2 Corinthians as well, for the church in Jerusalem. We know the saints there were very poor. We don't know why 100%, but... We know there was a famine there, the scriptures tell us, and many of them were struggling because of the famine. That's in Acts 11. We also know that there was a ton of persecution, that the church there in Jerusalem was extremely, uh, there was a lot of extreme interaction toward them, Paul himself having been a part of it, so much so that many of those Jews scattered all throughout the world. And it was part of God's plan. They would bring that message with them. But the those who stayed, we know James was put to death early. They were they were under a lot of persecution. So uh, where the church, we find the church in the world under a lot of persecution very often. They find themselves in situations of need as well. So the church had need. And Paul was going around making a collection as it was always on his heart to minister to the poor. But also to see a healing of Jew-Gentile relations of believers within the church. So a gift in the name of the God Jehovah back to the church in Jerusalem, of course, through Jesus Christ from the Gentile church, would be a pretty remarkable thing. And many of these churches were very willing to be a part of that. And Paul had begun to kind of set this up We know he wanted to go there. He had gone through Galatia in Acts chapter 18 on his way to Ephesus, and he apparently given them similar instructions. And we're going to see in this chapter, Paul's talking to Corinth about them being a part of that, this church. He, uh, in a very cool way, in terms of his very just simple addressing them with a lot of practical things here, gives us a picture, of course he's led through the Holy Spirit, it's not just Paul doing this, gives us a picture of the church through this chapter ministering to one another. And it's, it's very unique because it's the church worldwide, the church in local cities, and the church as individuals. All of these people being a part of the work of God where God has them and playing their little piece in that role. And in all of it, the Lord is a part of what's happening. So, They're all busy in the work of the Lord, but they're seeking to bless one another. And, you know, that's the way the church should be. It's the way the church is in the world when God is moving the Spirit. Certainly, our church as individuals ministers to one another, as a local fellowship around other fellowships ministers, and certainly as a whole in the world. We sought to minister to those in Ukraine and Maui, certainly in Florida, Puerto Rico. There's, there's, Part of what a healthy church does in terms of it doesn't just look at themselves in their own life. Because individuals are changed, then a collective body does that as well. And because these individuals were changed, they were concerned as collective bodies about those other believers in Jerusalem, whether they knew them or not, and what was going on there. So they're going to be a part of that, but apparently they need a little direction. So what Paul says to them is, As I have given orders to the churches of Galatia, so you must do also. So what I told everybody else, 
in essence. I'm going to tell you guys too. And here's what I want you to do. Verse 2. On the first day of the week, let each one of you lay something aside, storing up as he may prosper, that there be no collections when I come. So a little verse here, but it actually tells us two really important things about the practice of the early church. The first thing is this. Notice Paul says on the first day of the week, which was Sunday, the early church met on Sunday. That was the practice of the early church. Paul assumes that that's what they're doing. It was when Christ rose from the dead. It was when Christ appeared to his disciples, John 20, 19, and 26. We know it was when John was in the Spirit on the Isle of Patmos. And in Acts, very directly, 20, verses 6 through 7, the Bible says, this is Paul speaking, when we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread, in the five days joined to them at Troas, Paul's travels, Luke is the one saying we, where we stayed seven days, now on the first day of the week, when the disciples came together to break bread, Paul, ready to depart the next day, spoke to them and continued the message until midnight. Paul is traveling and he waits seven days because he knows disciples are going to meet on the first day of the week. So uh, the, the example, the clear practice of the early church, when we just look at the Bible and say, without persecution, under normal circumstances, believers regularly met on the first day of the week. So that's important for a couple of reasons. One is there are those out there, whether it's Seventh-day Adventists or different Hebrew roots movements that try to make it some type of command in the Bible that we still have to meet on Saturdays. We don't see that anywhere in the New Testament by those taught by the resurrected Jesus Christ himself. We see the meeting on the first day of the week. And we also see Paul say very clearly in Colossians 4, 16, that nobody should judge one another's based on Sabbath. So the idea is you could meet another day, but if we see what their general practice was, it was Sunday. That's what it was. And nobody can command anybody to do anything else, per se, in the Lord. So it's important to see the example that he lays there. Paul's assuming that's what, what's going to happen. So I don't think most of you struggle with that, but You'll probably have conversations with those here and there. It's important. The Bible teaches that was the early church example. I guess the application for us would be, maybe not for you sitting right here, but it is important for believers to gather. Paul assumes that's what's happening. Uh, I guess if you're out there still sitting at home from COVID with no good reason to be back in church, you should be in church. Uh, that's what the believers did. And these believers were under threat of persecution, and he's still assuming that they're going to meet. So... That is the general practice of the church, has been for thousands of years. If God tarries, it's what's going to continue. And it's important for us to see Paul totally just takes that as what's going to happen. When you meet on the first day of the week, then he speaks about their giving, which is another important thing to see here, because the church has a lot of ideas about giving. Here's what he says. Let each one of you lay something aside. So that means kind of store something up. He assumes if you're going to be a part of this, first day of the week, lay something aside. Choose what you're going to give. And notice, storing up as he may prosper. That means in proportion as the Lord has prospered you in your current state of life that you're in. Notice he doesn't say lay aside your tithe. There's no command to tithe. What he says is give according as God has prospered you. What can you give? If it was a widow with the two mice, that's what she gave. What, what God put on their hearts. Again, even early in the church, we know Ananias and Sapphira show up. Peter says, it was yours. You sold your stuff. You could have given whatever you want, but you decided to act like you gave more than you did. You lied about what you were doing there. And in terms of our giving, however the Lord prospers you, you take from that. You shouldn't, some of the people, you know, they pressure these crazy things like, uh, if you had enough faith, you would go into debt to give because God will pay you the rest back or something. Like people do crazy things. No, what do you have? How has the Lord prospered you? 
And you take from that and lay it aside. Right? If, if you're coming on hard times at certain times in your life, you, can't, you don't have to feel guilty about it. And if you hit the lottery and win $2 billion, you should give more than you normally do, right? It's, it's not that complicated. And Paul's just like, as the Lord has prospered you, it's actually pretty freeing to, to see that. Okay, that's what we're supposed to do. That, I also think this is important, that there be no collections when I come. Paul had absolutely zero intention of whipping people up into giving when he arrived. He says, I actually don't want this to happen at all when I show up, which is the opposite of what happens in a lot of places. Nowadays, the important dude shows up and he's the one who gets the money rolling. Right? What Paul says is, I want you guys, when you gather regularly, to give and give as the Lord has prospered you. And when I show up, I don't want to have to talk about it at all. I'm just going to take what the Lord has put on your heart, what you've given. There's, there's no uh, pressure from him because he's going to keep the most important thing, the focus, which is what he's bringing to them spiritually. And he doesn't want this, the material, to become the focus of what's happening. It's a part of what happens. It is not the focus, though. And obviously, we see differences in the church because of one or two reasons, either greed or ignorance. Some people have only been given a bad example, and they don't know anything better, which is why the, this is great. Here's the apostle's example. We should see that. Other people, they know totally what they're doing, and the Bible just says they're extortioners. They're out to peddle religious words for money. They're vendors. They're not actually ministers. And Paul doesn't want anything like that to happen. He says, actually, in 2 Corinthians 9.5, Therefore I thought it necessary to exhort the brethren to go to you ahead of time. Prepare your generous gift beforehand, which you had previously promised, that it may be ready as a matter of generosity and not as grudging obligation. Paul says, I don't want anybody to feel like they're obligated when I'm there have to show up and to pressure you into doing something that you didn't already want to do. He said, I want this done beforehand. And, and I think it's very, it's very important to recognize he wants his coming connected with, again, the spiritual things that he's bringing. You can just taste sometimes in various ministries that it is not the spiritual that's the most important. It is the material that is the most important. The spiritual things become secondary. The material things are really what is the focus, the outcome of what's going on. And Paul's emphasis is totally opposite of all those things. And I think it's important to see how the apostle goes about asking for money and what he's doing in that scenario. Not only that, notice verse 3, and when I come... Whomever you approve by your letters, I will send to bear your gift to Jerusalem. He says, and we remember, he's not getting the money for him. It's not Paul Incorporated, and he's taking his portion and then deciding what to do with the rest. He is asking for this money for the church in Jerusalem, and he says, whoever you guys trust, they make the whole collection— and they will bring the gift themselves. Paul's not even collecting the money. They're going to bring the money and offer it to Jerusalem. Part of that was cultural. Obviously, there was a personal connection behind the gift. I think Paul wanted that to happen, these Jewish believers to see Gentiles from Corinth and maybe even some other Jews show up in fellowship and offering a gift. Certainly, as well, part of that was safety in their day. Uh, you know, you weren't wire transferring money places couldn't Venmo the church in Jerusalem. So you were traveling with a lot of money and you didn't want to do that by yourself. So it was important to have a couple dudes walking with you that could help keep this safe. But the larger thing I think we see here is Paul's totally fine asking for money for others. But remember earlier in the letter, he said, I didn't ask you for money at all because I didn't want a single person saying Paul's just out, out for the money here. He said, I work with my own two hands. And I glory that God has given me the ability to do that. So I, I think in terms of 
That was what Paul was called to. But in terms of example, what we see here is Paul's emphasis is the spiritual. He knows money's a part of what's happening, but even in his asking for money, there's a totally God-honoring spiritual purpose behind it. I'm asking for this money for other people who are in need. It's a part of God's work in their life and yours. And it's important how even that happens. So please, when you guys meet regular, however the Lord has prospered you, set some aside. And when I come, I'm not there to whip anybody up. I don't even want a collection to happen when I'm there. When I show up, you tell me the guys that you trust, and those will be the ones who bring it. And he says, verse 4, if it's fitting that I go also, they will go with me. Uh, Some people think he's saying if the gift is good enough. I think the context is Paul's still not sure exactly what he's doing or where he's going. If it works out that I go with, they could come with. We'll all travel together and be a part of this. So the, the example we see here in how he goes about his business addressing this church, and remember, he says, these are the orders I gave to all the churches of Galatia. This is what I'm telling everybody. This was his practice, and it's important to see that example because churches still have to follow that example. It is wise to see his methods there. Now, verse 5, he says, I will come to you when I pass through Macedonia, for I am passing through Macedonia, and it may be that I will remain or even spend the winter with you. You may send me on my journey wherever I go. That means be a part of him. Certainly helps supporting him, maybe sending people along. For I do not wish to see you now on the way, but I hope to stay a while with you if the Lord permits. So here what Paul's doing is he's sharing his personal plans with them. He's saying, hey, I plan on going to Macedonia. I don't just want to stop by there real quick on the way to Macedonia. I think Paul knows Obviously, this is a pretty tense letter. We've taken a number of weeks going through it. This would be read all at once. It would be a lot to process for people in this church. He's like, I don't want to make this just a quick type of stopover. I'm going to do the thing that God wants me to do. Then I want to come back and I want to spend some time with you. I want to stay there a while. These are my general plans. So here's what I'm thinking about doing. He's informing them of that. But all of that is couched in, look at the end of verse 7, If the Lord permits, Paul knows and has experienced God's plans may very well be different than my plans. And he has seen that happen in his life a lot of times. He knows God's plans are better. So he's holding all his intentions there with an open hand. Again, and these things are in the Bible on purpose. This is an example for us as believers. As believers, you should have a a general plan for your life. If you don't know what you're doing at all, you should probably stop and think about (laughs) what is my life here about? You should have some type of plan for life, a responsibility, how you're going to serve the Lord. But our plans, we have to hold lightly. Sometimes we act like the only way God can work in our life is if he ratifies our plans. No, we, we have our plans, but we allow God to change them if he sees fit. Our purpose as believers never changes to go into all the world, to preach the gospel, to make disciples of all nations, teaching them to observe all the things that he commanded us. That never changes. To love God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love my neighbor as myself. That never changes. Wherever my plan is, whether the plan works out the way I want or not the way I want, my purpose is always the same as a Christian. Whether Paul was in jail, whether Paul was free in a church, whether Paul was shipwrecked, wherever he was, his purpose was the same. His plans, they changed. He had a plan, but the plan he held very lightly. His purpose, nobody was allowed to touch that. That never changed. No matter where he was in the plan, that never changed. And as a believer, our purpose in life never changes. It is always the same. No one should be able to take that from you. Your plans on how that works out, though, you have to hold those very lightly. Because they change. Things happen that we didn't think was a part of the plan, or we weren't anticipating, or didn't go exactly the way we want. And 
we can have these kind of unspoken agreements with God, like, you know, God, I'll do the thing you want me to do, and then you got to make this thing work out for me with my family or my marriage or my job. Or, and if it doesn't, then we get real upset, like, God, you didn't come through on your part of the plan. But he never signed any documents saying, yeah, I'm cool with that. There wasn't a contract. The plan's always his. And Paul understands, <clears throat> I'm going to communicate with these guys. Here's what my plan is. This is a godly plan. He's ministering. He wants to minister to a certain group of people. He wants to spend the right amount of time with them. But he says, if the Lord permits, here, here's what I plan on doing. Fill you guys in. But I know God's the one who ultimately directs these things. And that's how all of us live. And Paul knew that. And he often knew God's plan that was different than his worked out really well if he trusted him. Now, verse 8, <clears throat> he says, I will tarry in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a great and effective door has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. I think usually when we read those two things, we think of them as mutually exclusive, right? A great open door and many adversaries. Usually it's like the open door would be no adversaries and the adversaries would mean closed door. Paul sees both of these things uh, happening at the same time for him. God is doing a pretty remarkable work for him in Ephesus. Uh, some of the most remarkable things God did in Paul's life took place in Ephesus that we know of. But he also faced some of the harshest difficulties there and a lot of challenges. He already talked about fighting with men as beasts there and some of the different things that he went through. He'll also talk about having, even while he's gathering money for the Jewish church, one of his, his bitterest enemies or adversaries were the Jews in Ephesus. He said, serving the Lord with all humility in Acts 20, with many tears and trials which happened to me by the plotting of the Jews. He's talking to those leaders in Ephesus saying, you know how I was there ministering and literally with bitter tears. An evil plotting, the Jews were actively out to get Paul there in Ephesus. They did not like his message or his life or what God was doing. But God was also doing amazing things. People were getting saved. Demons were getting cast out. Miracles were happening. People were taking occult books and burning them. And there was remarkable things do going on. And what Paul says is, hey, look, there's an open door for me. I'm going to stay here for a while. And... There's many adversaries. And I think that should be an encouragement to us. Sometimes in our lives, the heat of the bat battle should tell you the value of the target. Right? In a war, when people are fighting for a position, it means that position is very important. And very often, when you're out of the game and your life makes no difference in the kingdom of God, Satan's totally cool leaving you alone. But the minute your life begins to make a difference for the kingdom of God, now you're a target. And we shouldn't be surprised if, you know, you're living in the world, you get convicted, you decide I want to start following Jesus, or maybe you're following the Lord, but he's speaking to you to follow him in a new way and surrender in a new way in your life. And when you begin to take that step, don't be surprised if there's kickback. If, if there's an open door to something good and then you say, Lord, you, you said to do this and now I did it and now look at what happened. Surprise, surprise. That's the way it works sometimes. Paul says there's an open door and there's a lot of adversaries. And for him, that began to be a bit of a clue. Oh, God wants to do something here. And the enemy's not happy about it. And it will be the same in our lives. And Paul knew that he needed to go through that open door. An effective door has been opened to me. We should be aware of those things. Paul talks about it in 2 Corinthians. We'll get there after communion. We'll head it to 2 Corinthians. But he talks about a door being opened by the Lord. We should recognize the Lord's hand in our lives. Paul tells him to pray for open doors in Colossians. Pray that God would give me an open door. You're like, man, I want to serve the Lord in a various way. I'll pray that God will give you an open door. The Lord in Revelation and writing to the churches says, see, I've set before you an open door. We should recognize when God is opening a door for us to serve him 
or to be a part of his work in one way or another. Paul can see those things, and he is excited to be a part of what the Lord is doing. Now in 10, he says, If Timothy comes, see that he may be with you without fear, for he does the work of the Lord as I also do. Therefore, let no one despise him, but set him on his journey in peace, that he may come to me, for I am waiting for him with the brethren. So Timothy here comes to our scene. We do know that Paul had already sent Timothy in chapter 4, verse 17. In this letter, he tells us that. In Acts 19, we see that Paul sent him with Erastus. So we don't know that much about Erastus, but Paul has sent Timothy and Erastus to Corinth to help minister to them, to deal with some of the issues. He would later send Titus and some others. He would ask Apollos to go there. He said, I'm planning... Paul was sending everybody to Corinth. Like, these guys need help. I want them to have some positive influence here. And he cared about them. So he says, hey, look, I already sent Timothy. Timothy's supposed to show up there. And he encourages them to let him be there without fear, because he's doing the work of the Lord, and not to despise him, but to help him on his journey. Now, in some ways, poor Timothy in the Bible is eternally young and eternally fearful, uh, especially to most commentators, right, because of the, some of the things that Paul says later. But I, I think the truth is obviously somewhere in the middle. Timothy apparently was younger in age, but he was not young in spiritual maturity. Because Paul would say in Philippians, I have nobody with me like Timothy. He was a spiritually mature individual that Paul regularly sent as his example places. He could trust what Timothy would say. Timothy was sound in heart and in doctrine. And when Paul said, I, in, in love for places that were struggling, I need to send somebody there that will represent me, he sent Timothy. So he was young in age, but not in Christian life as a representative, as a spiritual son of Paul. It's also clear Timothy wasn't a coward. Uh, he saw... Probably Paul stoned and risen from the dead. And to begin following Paul, he had to get circumcised, which is not a piece of cake when you're older. All right. So the guy, like if, if you're like, here's your introduction to ministry. OK, uh, I got killed and you got to go get circumcised. This is not a lot of people sign up for that right off the bat. So this guy, he, he was no coward. Okay? Sometimes people talk about him like he's trembling in fear. no. Timothy, he followed Paul around. Paul's life was not easy. He was under constant threat. And Timothy had the courage to step into those things. But as I, as I say, I, even Paul himself actually was afraid when he first went to Corinth. The Lord had to show up and be like, look, I'm going to take care of you. I got people here. So I think what's happening is Paul is sending Timothy into this spot where he knows there's tension. And Timothy is, in essence, right, his representative. Corinth, some will see him as the accomplice, you know. And he knows that there's going to be some issues when Timothy first shows up. So he says, don't let him be there in fear. Don't let him show up and have to be afraid how you guys are going to handle it or receive him in terms of, like, oh, man, this is going to be rough. I don't think Timothy's literally shaking in his boots, showing up to Corinth. Uh, he had faced more dangerous situations. I think he just knows these people are either going to help him or not, right? There's a difference between being brave and feeling fear and being actually someone who's controlled by fear. Timothy's not being controlled by fear here. He's doing the work of the Lord. That's what Paul says, just like I do the work of the Lord. So, Sending someone who's going to represent the work of the Lord, that person, he says, should not be despised. 11, therefore, let no one despise him. He's doing what God wants him to do. So don't treat him the wrong way. He should be, he should be accepted. He might be young. He could even be slightly fearful, but you shouldn't despise him because he's still about God's business. And the reality is, in all of our lives, that should be true. We should 
be willing to accept those who are doing and who are a part of the work of the Lord in our lives. Uh, sometimes it could be, you know, somebody who's coming up to us, maybe a little nervous or fearful about something. Some people have stronger personalities than others. Ian McLaren, who was a pastor, tells a story of a, another minister named John Carmichael, who was a young guy, shy, uh, not the most outgoing, kind of doubting, but very good in heart. And he took a ministry at a church, and the elders of the church could tell that he was nervous about things and doubting of himself, but they also could tell he had a great heart. And they all got together and just went into his office, and they met with him one day. And in his mind, he said, he was like, this is it. They're kicking me out type of a thing, right? But he said, the one elder just said, look, as the smoke goes up from the homes of the people in the morning, know that our prayers are going up for our minister. And that became the turning point for him. He realized, okay, no, God, you got this, right? They, they weren't having him there in fear. They weren't exerting that influence to make it hard for him. They were helping him instead of being a hindrance. And he became a blessing in that fellowship. So here Paul is saying, look, I sent Timothy to you. Don't, don't make him have to be afraid how he's going to be received. I think Timothy would have been there anyway, and he would have done the right thing anyway. And I don't think Paul doubts that. He knows Timothy has the courage to do that, but he wants the Corinthians to be open to the work of the Lord and not to be hard-headed and make it harder than it needs to be. Send him on his journey in peace that he may come to me, I'm waiting for him with the brethren. When you send Timothy away, be on good terms. Let him come back to me in peace. Don't make him leave having a, a big issue with them there. Now, 12, Paul says, Now concerning our brother Apollos, who we know had a big part in the beginning of this church, I strongly urged him to come to you with the brethren. But he was quite unwilling to come at this time. However, he will come when he has a convenient time. This is another little verse that tells us some wonderful things. Remember, Apollos was one of the people that the church was choosing. I'm of Paul. I'm of Apollos. They were breaking off into their groups. We know Apollos was a very powerful orator. People liked his presence, the way he could communicate. And he had an important influence there. And the first thing I think we see here that's a blessing, that there's no rivalry with Paul. Do you notice that? Like, Paul doesn't have an issue with Apollos. And in fact, he's saying, Apollos, please go back to this church because they'll listen to you. They don't listen to me. They think there's no resurrection. Go tell them there's a resurrection, right? I don't, Paul's, even though he helped establish this church, Paul, if they'll listen to another voice, I'll get that voice in there. Paul is not, Paul doesn't have to, have this insecurity in, in the work of the Lord. He just wants these people to grow in grace and the knowledge of the Lord. And so he's willing. He's like, I asked Apollos. I said, please go. But he also says, this other thing we learn here, apparently Apollos didn't want to do that. Apollos said, no, not at this time. It wasn't his will. It wasn't what the Lord was ministering to Apollos. He says he was quite unwilling at this point. So this also tells us there's no popes here in the early church, right? You would think if you're going to listen to one person, it would be the Apostle Paul. And the Apostle Paul says, hey, Apollos, I think it'd be a great idea if you went back to Corinth. Here's what's going on there. And Apollos is like, I'm not supposed to do that right now. And Paul doesn't take it personally. Paul says, that's not what the Lord was telling him. So when he has a convenient time, he'll come. I asked him to come, but he felt like he was supposed to do something else. There's no battling here. There's no, I'm the Lord, you need to listen to my vision. <laughs> I'm the shepherd here, you need to understand what I'm saying. There's a lot of folks that if they had Paul's influence, they would not have Paul's spirit. They would leverage that as much as they could to lord it over others. We don't see any of that here. I think whenever we're feeling like if we find ourselves in a position that we feel like another believer needs to lend their influence to your personal call, you're in a dangerous position. 
That's a position you have to be careful about. Nobody needs to do something for you. If God is involved in your purpose, you don't need another man. And I think Paul knew if God is involved in this, I don't need Apollos. I've asked him. Apollos is doing something else the Lord wants him to do. And if we find ourselves in a position that we need a person to lend their influence to our cause, right? This is what happens particularly, you know, somebody builds up an influence or they build up a Twitter following or they, or X following, whatever it is now. They build up some type of following. Then everybody who has a, who has a thing, a shtick, even if it's a good one, that person has to lend their influence to our cause because our cause is a good cause. That's not what has to happen. Actually, is God behind your cause? Then why do you need a man? Paul's like, I asked Paulus. Paulus said no. And Apollos knows, you don't need me. And Paul's cool with it. And apparently Paulus is cool with it. And here we can see two apostles agreeing to do different things in the will of the Lord. And no issue. And Paul says, when he's ready, he'll come. And Paul will be happy with that. I think it's a great example, again, something that we can just read over and not really think about, but this tells us something important about ministering in the Spirit. Now, Paul's going to give some final exhortations here, and he gives these quick kind of commandments. Verse 13, watch, he says, stand fast in the faith, be brave, be strong, let all that you do be done with love. These commandments here are things that I think Paul knows. Anybody that hears this letter and they want to do the right thing, they want to stop being a part of the divisions. They want to lean not on their own understanding, but on the wisdom of God. They don't want to abuse their spiritual gifts. They want to do church discipline the right way. They want to not be a part of getting drunk at the communion table or caring about believers who are less mature. Any of those things, you know what? It's going to take some spiritual strength and bravery. It's going to take being on guard. It's going to take love in Christ. Paul knows, I think these commandments are essentially things that he knows. Okay, anybody that heard this letter that understands that these things are true, they're going to need these things. This is what they're going to have to do to make that happen. So watch that first word there is, Essentially, be on guard. The Bible uses the same word for a lot of things. Matthew 24, we're supposed to watch for the Lord's coming. Matthew 26, we're supposed to watch that we don't fall into temptation. 1 Thessalonians 5, we're supposed to watch that we don't go into moral sleepiness. 1 Peter 5, he tells us to watch because we have an enemy, the devil. Revelation 3, 2, Jesus tells the church to watch. Their spiritual life that doesn't die out. Right? We're supposed to be on guard. What about the things in my life? We can, we can be involved in something and, and we start to just get distracted. Right? That's when you, you're at work, you do something a lot, and you make that mistake. Because you just you stop really watching. You stop being on guard. You're changing a baby and you turn your head for a second. Bad things can happen, right? You're a cook. You're trying to make some caramel or something, and for a second it goes a little too long. You burn the whole thing, right? There's there's so many scenarios in life where you're just doing something common, and what can happen is the same thing in our spiritual life. I'm doing this common thing, this regular thing, and I stop watching. I stop realizing, oh, whoa, this can go off off track pretty fast if I don't tend to it. If I'm not on guard. And Paul knows that they need that. When he says stand fast in the faith, the idea is not to fall from or don't be pushed aside from. Stand fast in the faith. The idea being the faith, as you said, which is once and for all delivered to the saints. And sometimes, and as it was, I think, happening here, there's a lot of worldly philosophy. There's a lot of discussions about things, even the resurrection, spiritual gifts. And, and the church is beginning to get off course on some various things. And I think it's important as Christians that we realize we have been delivered something. 
We have been given truth. And like every point of doctrine is not up for debate. Sometimes there's discussions in the world where people who are really spiritual have prayed a lot and thought about it, a lot about something and now they're changing their mind about it. Well, guess what? It's actually not up for debate. doesn't matter how much you pray about it or how much you cry about it. There has been something once and for all delivered to the saints. We don't just have beliefs or opinions or ideas or spiritual journeys. We have truth that was given to us by God. And all of that's not up for debate. And there's a whole lot of that that I'm called to stand fast in because the world will be active to push us off of it. Whether it's through the intellect, whether it's through the emotion, whether it's through the literal body, right? Around the world, we got a lot of brothers and sisters. The challenge is their body. If you don't give up that truth, we will kill you or throw you in prison. That's not most of America. What, what we face most of the time is to stand fast in the faith intellectually or relationally. A family member is going to cut you off. Or a group, a community that you like is going to cut you off. Or you're going to be on the outskirts or something. Or smart people are going to look down on you. Or somebody you look up to in one way or another. A professor you like. Or a friend you used to have. And what Paul says is, you need to stand fast in the faith. You need to not be moved from it. Don't allow somebody to push you off. Just, just because the world is changing its ideas about certain things, doesn't mean that God has changed his idea about heaven, about hell, about forgiveness, about marriage, about creation, about men, about women, about his word, about sin. He's not changing his mind. He doesn't change with the times. He's beyond the times. He's eternal. The times become when he wants them to. And Paul says to them, because he knows there's always the challenge, stand fast in the faith, what was once and for all delivered to the saints. Again, in 2 Corinthians, he's going to say, we have renounced the hidden things of shame, not walking in craftiness, nor handling the word of God deceitfully, but by manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. That's that's what I do as a Christian. I show that I stand on what I believe is true through my life. I manifest the truth, not just ideas, because there's a lot, he says, that walk in craftiness and handle the word of God deceitfully. Just like then, just like now. Stand fast in the faith. Be brave, he says. You're Bible might say, act like a man or quit you like men. The Greek word is, is used only here, and it has the idea of to make a man or to act like a man. We might say in our modern vernacular, grow up. Paul had already said to them, I want to talk to you like adults. I got to talk to you like kids because of what you're doing. And what he's saying to them is, be brave. The idea is they've been acting like children. It's time for you in your faith and in your life to act like mature adults. Act like an adult now. I need you to look at these things with a different type of responsibility. And then he says, be strong. The word actually has the idea there of being strengthened. And more particularly in the spirit, it's used twice in Luke 180 and 240 of John the Baptist and Jesus Christ as kids where it says they became strong in spirit. And Paul would pray the same thing for the church in Ephesus, where he would say that he, God, would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with might through his spirit in the inner man. Here, the call is, because he knew they would need it, if you want to obey in the things that I called you to, 
that I wrote in this letter, you need to be strong in the spirit. You need to be strong in your inner man. Allow yourself to be strengthened there. The reality is, I think, most of the battles in our lives, we don't actually need more Christian information. We need more Christian strength, maturity, strength of spirit, strength of spirit to forgive, strength of spirit to love, strength of spirit to be patient, strength of spirit to follow him outside the city in his rejection. Strength of spirit to surrender our own plans or comfort. Strength of spirit to trust. Strength of spirit to hold. Be strengthened, Paul says. You need strength in your spirit. All of this watchful, immovable, mature, strong life can all be lived then, he says, in love. Let all that you do be done in love. Why, why do we want to be any of those things? Well, because we love him and because we love others. So it always falls back to, am I loving him with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength? Am I loving others? Him first, others second. Now, 15, he'll say, I urge you, brethren, you know the household of Stephanos, that's the first fruits of Acacia, that they have devoted themselves to the ministry of the saints, that you also submit to such and to everyone who works and labors with us. Now, he had mentioned this household in 116. It was the only household he baptized. Apparently, that would make sense, especially if they were the first. So apparently they were the first family that got saved in the area. And then Paul says this wonderful thing about them, that they devoted themselves to the ministry of the saints. They addicted themselves to the ministry of the saints is the idea. So this family gets saved at first, the first family saved in the area. And Paul's like, and they just gave themselves to the ministry of the saints. You got to imagine you're the first family saved. Paul's standing there with you. Okay, guys, whose house do you want to meet in? I can make us a tent or we can meet in your house, right? There's only two choices. Uh, somebody else gets saved in the city. I'm going to introduce you to another believer. Stephanos, right? Yeah, hey, hey, nobody else is there. But they willingly kind of, it seems, accepted that position and they gave themselves over to the ministry of the saints. The Bible says it's the angel's work sent to minister to the heirs of salvation. These guys are a part of what God is doing too. The work of the Lord is what he's doing through his spirit, through the supernatural realm, and they became a part of it. And I think maybe I can say a word particularly because it's such a wonderful testimony to husbands who are listening, to young men who will run households who are listening. What do you want your household to be about? Is this the testimony of your household? Would others look at you and say, that household is addicted to the ministry of the saints, to the work of the Lord? Right, Joshua says, as for me and my household, we're going to serve the Lord. That's what we're going to be about. Now, of course, you know, sometimes there's difficulties in a home. Sometimes there's a spouse who's really against those things. But I would say, under most scenarios in many Christian homes, there are a whole lot of wives who would rather, if their husband said, you know what, we're going to take a step up spiritually in what our priorities are. They would be very happy about that. The household of Stephanos, they addicted themselves to the ministry of the saints. That's what his house was about. So what Paul says in 16 is, submit to such, and everyone who works and labors with us. Hey, that type of household, that's an example. Submit in Christian love, submitting to one another, as he says in Ephesians. Be a part of what they're doing. They've been doing it from the beginning. They were the first ones, and they gave themselves to it. I think everybody there would know that. They'd be familiar with it. Now, 17 and 18, he says, I'm glad about the coming of Stephanus, Fortuitus, and Acacius, for they were lack for what was lacking on your part they supplied, for they refreshed my spirit in yours, therefore acknowledge such men. These men are likely brought that letter to Paul from the church, 
seems that they were in good fellowship with him, good standing there. Paul says that they were refreshed. They gave what was lacking. I don't think that's just uh, material support. The idea is, I think, emotional support, right? Spiritual support. That He knew, okay, there's still this solid group in the church. There's some that are involved in this false teaching. There are some that are doing this, but there's this solid group in the church that still wants what's right. They are there. They come to Paul. They refresh one another. It was the outcome of their fellowship. I think it was great for Paul to hear. Now there are pe- this is happening, but there are people there that get that. They understand that this is wrong, or here's how we're handling the situation. I think that was important for Paul to hear. Again, that should be a simple testimony, right? If other if you as a Christian come into other Christians' lives, are you a refreshment or do you walk away and you have drained that other believer? That should not be our testimony. And we all have our weak moments, right? I'm not saying that there's not times where we need help. That's fine. But there are some people that they are not mutually refreshing. That should not be our testimony, okay? These guys, they're refreshing in Christian testimony. Paul is glad about that. And he says, acknowledge such men. There's a healthy type of Christian acknowledgement there. He'll say the same in Philippians 2 about honoring in the correct way. Now, 19, the churches of Asia greet you. Aquila and Priscilla greet you heartily in the Lord. With the church that is in their house, all the brethren greet you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. There's now this love of shared fellowships going around. I'm sure believers, you know, you're a believer in a city. You're the first ones there. You're happy to hear believers are in other cities, that God is doing this work, and they're sharing their love with one another. He says, Aquila and Priscilla greet you heartily in the Lord. Remember, Aquila and Priscilla were in Corinth for a time. They were a part of what God did there. They weren't there for a long time. They met Paul, but then they went with Eph- to Ephesus with him, but they did minister to Apollos and help teach him the gospel more correctly. And so even though they had kind of a shorter time in Corinth, they were a big part of the ministry that happened at that church. I think, again, just as an example for us, there are times in our life where the Lord will take you through scenarios. Maybe you're here for college or work, and you're going to be here for a few years, and the Lord's going to move you somewhere else, or the Lord will take you from here and put you in another place for a few years and bring you back. What type of influence you can have it is always worth gathering with the body of Christ. And what type of influence you can have, you can never tell. And what, what difference did Aquila and Priscilla make in Corinth just by ministering to Apollos? Who knows? Who knows? Whatever chance the Lord gives us with other believers, it's important, even if it's a short time. Greet one another with a holy kiss. Again, a holy kiss. Shouldn't be deceitful like Joab. If you know anything about Joab, you didn't want to kiss Joab. Uh, If you're not sure about that, read the Old Testament. You'll get it. You don't want a hollow kiss like Judas, right? This was a true greeting of brotherly love. Paul says, the salutation with my own hand, Paul's. Often he would dictate the letter and then write that himself. It was different in Galatians where he said, I wrote this letter myself, you can see. And then he says this interesting verse here as we come to the end. If anyone does not love the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be accursed. O Lord, come. And the words there, let him be anathema maranatha. Anathema is to be accursed or damned. It's used in Acts 23.14, Romans 9.3, where Paul talks about himself being accursed for his own people. Paul will use it again in this letter in 12.3, where he talks about a person cursing Christ. They don't have the spirit then. And Galatians, where he says, if, if even an angel shows up and gives you another gospel, let him be anathema, eternally damned. Pretty serious thing to say about a spiritual being. Maranatha is an interesting use of the Greek, and it means either our Lord come or our Lord has come. Maybe both ideas are supposed to be caught there. But I think it's a very unique way to finish the epistle. I I wouldn't say it's unprecedented because when Paul finishes his letter to the Ephesians, he says this, Grace be with all those who love our Lord Jesus Christ in sincerity. Amen. 
And so I find it very interesting that to Corinth, where we have so much doctrine and instruction and correction, like Paul has to go literally down to church discipline and telling a church there's believers that are sick and dying there because of your sin and bad practice. In fact, your guys' gathering is sometimes for the worse and not for the better, where he has to go to some of the lowest places you can go in talking to a church. He says, if you don't love the Lord Jesus Christ, let that person be anathema, maranatha. And then when he writes to the church in Ephesus, where he writes some of the highest things that are written in the Bible, some of the most lofty theological things, some of the most remarkable things said about God, predestination, the love of God, some of the most remarkable prayers in the Bible. At the end of all that, he says, grace be with all those who love the Lord Jesus Christ in sincerity. And I think what we learn is, it doesn't matter how high you can go or how low you can go. If you don't love Jesus, it's never going to work out anyway. It doesn't matter how much correction you give somebody or how much lofty spiritual input you give somebody. If they don't love the Lord Jesus Christ in sincerity, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. That's going to be the defining factor in what matters. It's the only true security against evil in us or around us, genuine love for the Lord Jesus Christ. If you love Christians, you can love Christians and just actually love having friends. You can love Christian community and just actually love having a social life. You can love the church and actually just love having religion. You can love worship and just actually love art or music. You could love the Bible and just actually love theology. You could love morality and just actually love yourself. That's what the Pharisees did. All these things are good, but they fail at some point. If you don't sincerely love Jesus, we will eventually leave him for what we do love. If our love for Christ is a means towards something other than Christ, instead of love to and for Jesus, there's going to be an issue eventually. That's why the Lord would say in Jeremiah 29, 13, and you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. A lot of people aren't finding him because they're not actually searching for him with all their heart. They really want something else. God's not into timeshares in our hearts. Like he can have a piece and somebody else can have the rest. He's not into 75%. And there's all the difference in the world between being a good Christian and loving Jesus Christ. The Pharisees were good Christians. Peter loved Jesus Christ. Well, it didn't mean Peter was perfect. He was imperfect. But he loved Jesus. We know at the end in John 21 when Jesus challenged them the third time and said, I heard him, do you love me? Peter could look Jesus in the face and said, Lord, you know all things you know that I love you. That's a pretty powerful thing to say to the person who actually knows all things. Right? And that's why Peter could go right in the end. That was what mattered. And maybe if I can assure some troubled hearts, you don't want to fear you don't have any love for God just because you don't meet some arbitrary emotional feeling or have religious fire that it seems like other people have. There's a lot of martyrs and Christians that have gone through difficult things that worried about their love for their Lord the whole time until that trial came. And when the trial came, it was way easier than they ever thought it would be. Their love for Christ actually wasn't shaken at all. But it is a challenge to think, do I actually love him? We can never love him too much. He's infinite which means he's deserving of an infinite love. And even at best, our love is always a debt. We owe it to him. And his love is free. He didn't owe us at all. I can never love Jesus too much. I can love the world too much. But never him. I should 
the old divines used to say, lean toward love. Or let love be the willed tendency of your heart. Because they knew we can't conjure it in ourselves, but we can choose it. Why, why would Paul be so severe here? Let him be anathema. It's because there is no greater injustice in the world than for man to have no love for Jesus Christ. We are very sensitive about injustice between man and man, and those things are wrong. But we almost think nothing about injustice between God and man. And the greatest injustice in the world is that there is no love for Jesus Christ. He left heaven for earth, Bethlehem to Egypt, to Nazareth, to homelessness, to the cross, to the grave. For us, and in him, the Bible says, dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. And it's by his son that he's spoken to us, who is the express image of his person. God has lastly in these final times spoken to us through his son. And if I have no love for Christ, I have no love for the fullness of the Godhead bodily. To have no love for Christ is to have no love for God, for the fullness that is in God, for perfection. It is to be the opposite of what God made me to be. It is to have love for everything that is outside of Christ. And apparently it, would, it was evident to Paul, like we would be able to tell who loved God and who didn't, who actually loved him and who didn't. Paul knew that the Lord would be able to determine that. And if, if I can put it out there, I do think there's a very easy test. The test is not emotion, because people can have emotional moments. People can be emotionally stirred up for religious things, for religious songs, for Mary, for saints, for religious individuals or stories or people that they know or like. Real emotion is not the test. The test is what Jesus makes it. And I think this is important because there's a lot of stories out there, too, where people say things like, you know, some person who's living in direct disobedience to the Lord, but they really love God. And if he's going to judge me or send me to hell, then I guess that's just what's going to happen. But I'll just go there loving him. Here's the test. Here's what Jesus says. If you love me, keep my commandments. It's real simple. Here, here's the dividing line. He who has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me. These are not my words. These are Jesus' words. He who does not love me does not keep my words. If I love him, I will keep his commandments. My attitude toward his commandments will show my love toward him. If I do not keep his commandments, I do not love him. If I have emotion and I live in disobedience, I love him as a means not as a person. And as a Christian, anyone who claims to love Jesus Christ that doesn't obey his commandments does not love the Lord Jesus Christ. And when Jesus Christ does come, he will come as who he said he was, not as we might have imagined or wished him to be. And it's important we can read the highest things in the Bible and the most challenging things in the Bible. But if I don't have a heart that actually loves God, it's not going to make a difference. It's not going to make a difference. And I can gauge my heart and my love toward the Lord and how I respond to his commandments. That's what Jesus says. He made it clear in John 14. And Paul understands all the commandments he just gave. If any man doesn't love the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be anathema. Maranatha, the Lord come. So, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you. And Paul wants them to know this. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. All. Even the ones that have done wrong. Even the ones who are teaching false doctrine. He wanted them to understand the truth and to know Jesus Christ. And he just said, I want you to do all that you do in love. And he wants them to know this epistle 
was written in love. Let's stand. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word. I do pray, Lord, that you would allow us to love you in sincerity, in truth. I pray, Lord Jesus, that where we are weak in that, that you would count us worthy to love you more, more of our heart, more of our soul, more of our mind, and more of our strength. We know we can't even conjure that up without you. But we also know, Lord, that you've given us your spirit to shed your love abroad in our hearts and truth. So, Lord, where we need your correction, I pray that you would give us a repentant heart that we could graciously bow to you and your commandments and love you by honoring them. And Lord Jesus, certainly again, for any here that might think they know you or love you, but don't, I pray that they would see, Lord, the truth and repent and turn to you because you're gracious, you're slow to anger, and you are merciful. And you speak to us because you love us and you want to call us to follow you. So, Lord, we commit our hearts, our lives to you. Thank you again for this word and this epistle of 1 Corinthians. Strengthen us in our spirit where you know we need it. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.